Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We are back, and this is the last day of the 14 Shifting Market Rules. And today we're going to be going over point, te- uh, point 13 and point 14. And then we're going to get to some of the questions that we received from Instagram and also from those of you who emailed or texted Julie and I with questions about the real estate market, uh, questions about lead generation, questions about your real estate business, all that type of stuff. So we've got, uh, I think, five or six questions that we're going to answer after we go through point 13 and 14. Now, I want to thank all of you who have taken the time to give Julie and I a five-star review on iTunes and on Spotify. It means the world to us. We sincerely appreciate it. And if you are on YouTube and you're watching our video channel, which is basically the podcast in a video, and it's not Julie and I presenting the podcast live in a video. And the reason is, is because if you were to see Julie and I's podcasting environment, you'd never listen to us again. <laughs> <laughs> That's honest. It's complete chaos. There's wires everywhere. There's, you know, spider webs. There's monkeys. No, no, I'm just kidding. It's just because basically our podcast studio is a bit of a closet. And so as a result, there's not it's not very conducive to videotaping. But we are working on that. We're hoping to actually have a live video of us doing the podcast starting um, in the next, well, hopefully the next 90 to 120 days, but that's in process as we build the studio. In the meantime, we want to sincerely thank you for keeping this the number one listen to daily uh, podcast for real estate professionals in at least the United States. We continuously have really hundreds of thousands of you listening and downloading every single month. It's pretty extraordinary. It's our pleasure and our honor to be your very consistent real estate coaches, especially during a great time of uh, change right now. And the great change that's happening, by the way, and Julie and I are going to be answering or talking more about this when we get to your questions. The change that's happening is not going to be in housing. The change that's happening is going to be in the overall economy because of inflation. And so we're going to get to some of those inflation-related questions here in a second and how that will affect housing. But in the meantime, thank you again for giving us five-star reviews on iTunes and on Spotify. And if you're listening to us on YouTube, please do like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Anything that you guys can do to support us is fantastic. Podcast doesn't cost you anything based on all the great five-star reviews we're getting The podcast is definitely making a significant impact on your business and personal lives. So please do, um, you know, say thank you by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or on Spotify. Begging over. All right. Begging over. Okay, so now we're going to get to uh, point number 13. Julie. Yes, so again, this is part four of 14 Shifting Market Rules, point number 13. Always have the strongest lender letter when you're representing the buyer. Of course, that's assuming that they're not all cash, but if they have financing, You have to have the strongest lender letter when you're on the buyer side. It is not good enough to just be pre-approved. Your buyer needs to be under loan commitment pending identification of the property and maybe the appraisal, but nothing else. So have your lender call the listing agent and speak not just to their pre-approval status or their loan commitment status, but actually state that their ratios, their credit, their employment, their down payment have been verified and are adequate for the purchase price of the home. The deals that are coming apart right now are the ones that have old pre-approval letters based on 3.5%, 4%, whatever. And uh, the deals that are dying or not getting accepted in the first place have either no lender letter, weak lender letter, or no detail to it. 
So you can fix that. Those of you who are in a premier coaching program, there's something that this is going to be for premier coaching members. Here's your immediate action item. Go to our learning portal and download something called the ultimate addendum, correct? That's correct, yep. Now, in the ultimate addendum, what that is essentially, it's originally designed for listing agents, but you can use it on the buyer's agent side as well. And Julie, describe to him what the ultimate addendum is. Well, so the ultimate addendum is to be used by listing agents as a counter offer response to the, the offer that you're accepting, which literally states all of these things, right? So what kills deals, it's things that happen in underwriting because the lender takes too long. We find out at the 11th hour and your closing gets canceled. Many of you know how that drill goes. So the ultimate addendum actually states, it, it asks for the lender letter to state specifically that the credit has not just been run once, but has been checked and is adequate. The down payment has been verified. Their ratios are adequate. Well, let's give uh, all of, of a, those things. Let's give more of a drill down. Yeah. The ultimate addendum states specifically that the lender within the last 30 days has done a three merge credit report checking all three credit bureaus. Because normally lender will check one. They're not going to check all three until like the house is, until you actually have something in contract. And what happens, just using as an example, is they could have great credit on two, uh, two bureaus, but on the third one, there's all kind of collections from 10 years ago or whatever that's going to blow their credit score down and make it so they no longer qualify. So agents out there understand that when you call, when your lender calls the borrower and asks the borrower to run credit and they do all that, normally they're just running it with one bureau. There's three bureaus. Now, there's, it's even more complicated than that, and this is something I was just thinking of. The, um, how do I explain this? So you're a listing agent. And you get a great um, offer. It's you know asking price over asking price. Everything about it's realistic. Your seller accepts it. No home sale contingencies in this contract whatsoever. It's just contingent on financing. But specifically, it's not even contingent on financing as much as it is. It's basically the appraisal of the property. This looks like a dream contract. But what you don't know is the financing itself is actually subject to a home sale. Now, I want to say that again because some of you are confused, and I understand why. And by the way, the way Julie and I learned this was back when our first year in the business, we got stuck with something like this where a, uh, a crafty buyer's agent tricked us into accepting a home sale contingency, and it flaked out at the last minute because the buyer didn't sell their house. All right, so here's basically the scenario. You submit an offer to a, a listing agent. Your buyer has something to sell. You know that listing agent and that seller is not going to take a home sale contingency in the contract. And so what these buyer's agents will do is they won't make the sale contingent on it, um, the uh, sale of the buyer's home, but the financing is going to be contingent on, a in other words, the sale of the home or the buyer being obligated to buy the home is contingent on the buyer being able to obtain financing. The financing is contingent on the uh, buyer selling their house. You guys get it? So what that buyer's agent's done is they've been crafty because you as a listing agent weren't clever enough to drill down more on really the buyer's uh, qualifications. And so this, I know that's confusing, but that happens all the time. I'll tell you the other one I see a lot of people trying to be sneaky about is these cash offers. These cash offers most of the time are a bunch of hooey. Unless you really drill down like a statutory sort of lender's letter stating that the borrower has this much money, you got to actually drill down and make sure that is that money in some sort of Bitcoin account that crypto account that basically is you know going to be eviscerated in the next 30 days is that lender's letter 60 days old when their portfolio was worth you know you guys get my point so you really got to drill down is it cash or is it something that is sort of like cash if and when the borrower decides to actually sell whatever the asset is to use as the down payment this is what the ultimate addendum is all about so as julia was reading you know point 13 is as you know regarding the lender's letter 
she's obviously we're gearing all of our content primarily to those of you who are listing agents or becoming listing agents but you absolutely should be using that same ultimate addendum because what that acts as if you're working with buyers is a checklist to make sure your buyer or your loan officer representing obviously your buyers isn't being lazy because loan officers are coached and trained god bless you guys but it's true loan officers are coached and trained to not spend a lot of time on the file until the borrower is actually in contract on a house because after all what's the point of them doing all this extra work and spending all this time with the borrower who doesn't ever you know get in contract on something to buy something so they're going to wait to do the real work after the borrowers in contract after you've given up all your nights and weekends after you've beat your head against the wall for you know 16 years to find a you know perfect house for the, you guys get the point so make sure before you work with any borrowers before you work with any buyers who are borrowers, you absolutely positively use this ultimate addendum. So it gives you a checklist to make sure the loan officer is not being lazy. So Premier Coaching members, just log in and get that ultimate addendum. It's critical you get that right away. Those of you who are ready to join Premier Coaching, you know what to do. Text the word Premier to 47372. Text the word Premier to 47372. And when you do, we're going to text you back a link. You just have to say yes. And then we're going to text you a link and you can join Premier. Um, and you can join Premier for around $100 a month, depending on how you choose to join. So just, and that does include a daily semi-private coaching call with a coach, with a real live coach on a, you know, real live coaching call, right? This happens every single weekday. So just text the word Premier to 47372. Remember, message and data rates may apply. Yes. Now you mentioned it from the listing agent standpoint that you can counter back to a buyer's agent that, hey, I, the lender letter is great, but I want to see these specific points that have been checked. Essentially, you're forcing the lender into underwriting sooner than they normally would. Okay. Right. Now, a smart buyer's agent, let's put our buyer hat on, a smart buyer's agent will take that very same ultimate addendum, look at it as a checklist, as you said, and talk to the lender before you write an offer and make sure that that's embedded in your buyer's lender letter so that you don't have to be counter-offered. So if you're looking at 10 offers, right, or even five offers, and you're comparing apples to apples, and we have all these standard issue boilerplate lender letters, and then this one says, actually, we are already through underwriting. We're at loan commitment because we've done the credit check. We've done the uh, down payment uh, verification. It's not coming from crypto. It's an actual cash account. Here's proof of it. That kind of stuff. We actually had in our first year of business, we had a borrower whose loan was contingent upon them selling Persian rugs in um, Iran. And we had another one. I'm not making this up. You think I am, but I'm not. Whose loan, who didn't get his uh, loan at the last minute because this is how, I mean, we were learning on the job. These are expensive lessons, right? So don't make the same mistakes because his loan was actually contingent on him selling some sort of huge beer can collection. I'm not making that I another up. Another one of his uh, grandma's piano. Yeah, well, that's even. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. it's crazy, right? So define cash, right? right? Where is it coming from? Has it been verified is what the ultimate addendum says. It's not the borrower's fault that they no. essentially are walking around thinking that they're pre-qualified or pre-approved or whatever the makeup lender term is. It's not the borrower's fault for thinking that the lender actually did real work on their file. They don't know any better. Even an experienced borrower doesn't know how much work was actually done on the file. That's the reason that this is one of the frankly one of the biggest problems with the whole real estate transaction uh, is the fact that lenders do procrastinate doing any real work on the file. Yeah. You know that we talked about some of these basic things. There's also underwriting. I'm sorry. There's also lender overlays, and you don't know. For example, 
if and we can talk about lending forever and i know that you're preparing a podcast yep. on that but if you are working with a lender you could have like three lenders that you're thinking about working with and let's say all of them offer seemingly the same product 30-year fix with 10 percent down you know here's the credit requirements but what you did not ask is what are the overlays that your lender has don't be shocked when yeah. your loan officer doesn't even know what the hell the term overlay means or doesn't even know that their lender is charging overlays and all an overlay is is just as it sounds they're added rules added levels of um you know higher standards basically requirements that your borrower is going to have to essentially you know pass through in order to get the loan but unless you know to ask those questions and that unless your loan officer is experienced enough to know well you know maybe i'm seeing that this uh you know lender is not necessarily they have too many overlays they don't do a very good job at this th job at that they're not that competitive but what happens a lot of times is you guys people are very predictable in their behaviors generally speaking they're going to take the path that they perceive to be of the least resistance loan officers are the exact same way so if you go to a loan officer which by the way it's kind of a funny term for you know salespeople. it's a weird term yeah but if you go to a loan officer chances are he's going or she's going to want to lean into the same sources of mortgages that they've been using or it's not even up to them. A lot of these loan officers, they'll take a, you know, get an application filled out and then they'll take it to whatever their boss is, whatever title that made up title that one is. And then that person's going to decide what the best loan product is for that borrower based on guess what? Whatever pays the most points. Well, obviously, let's assume there's ethics involved, which there is obviously in a lot of cases where the borrower is going to be a you know best fit for this particular product. But don't think the loan the mortgage uh, you know essentially provider the loan provider who's paying the most points doesn't go to the best, the, the top of the stack. So what happens is a mortgage loan officer and a mortgage company, a broker, they make money sometimes on the front end, but in a really competitive uh, environment, they make it all on the back end. So a mortgage company will say, you bring me a borrower with this credit score, borrowing this amount of money, and then we're going to pay you two points or three points or four points or 10 points in the back end. So if the loan is for, you know, let's say, uh, $500,000 and they're making three points in the back end, that means the commission to the mortgage company is 15 grand. Now I know in a really competitive environment, uh, you generally speaking don't see uh, loan commissions that high on the back end. But the other thing is, is a lot of the government loans actually pay the most commission and they don't call it commission, that is what it is, back to the mortgage company. So you've got to know all these things if you really want to have an unfair advantage in the marketplace. But really what this is going to do for those of you who are working with a lot of buyers, it's going to help you quickly discern which buyers are actually real which versus which are imaginary, right? Because a lot of the uh, buyers don't know that they what they don't know. And as a result of that, you're going to end up spending a lot of time with people you shouldn't. I mean, God bless them, you know, but they're not people you should be focusing on because you're a real estate professional. Your job is to help people, but also as a business owner to make money. Point number 14, Julie. Yes, point number 14, knowledge equals confidence, ignorance equals fear. Monitor your beliefs during a market shift. Are they based on facts or are they based on conjecture? Know what's happening in your own backyard. How do you do that? You watch your MLS hot sheets, you read your Board of Realtors monthly reports, and stay tuned into your favorite podcast. That would be us. Uh, also, there's a great company called listreports.com. I read that every morning about the Austin market where my license is. And it, it says, you know, it's kind of like your, your hot sheet, but it also shows other trends, days on the market, how many active listings there are, what's the average sale price, what's, the, what's hot and what's not, what's the, you know, the hot price ranges and all that kind of thing. So you've got to stay up to speed on what's happening in your market. You may have certain price ranges 
that now you don't have to do crazy things to get in contract and other price ranges where it's still super competitive. That's not the same from city to city. You've got to watch your own backyard. All right, so we're going to go to some of these questions. I wrote some of these down. They, a lot of the questions sort of fell into the same buckets, like four different distinct buckets. Um, and, uh, you know, I went through the questions. I wrote them all down. And I'm Julie and I are going to talk about a lot of these as opposed to me reading the question, who it's from, and reading the answer because I have a feeling that you guys will get more from it if Julie and I just sort of coach uh, each other or coach as if we are having a coaching call with one of you talking about these individual um, questions or these topics or these areas of concern. So the first, uh, I would say, by far, the biggest group of questions that we were getting, and again, if you guys want to send us a question, you can just frankly just text me at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206, or a lot of you are doing is just sending the question over to us through our Instagram, and Instagram is at Tim and Julie Harris. So either way is great. So one of the big questions was, and what is, there? a lot of agents are worried that there's going to be a market crash. And I know we just did the uh, podcast on the reasons why there's not going to be a market crash. And so I'm going to direct, as I did, and many of you who messaged me about that, just go and listen to the podcast that we did on that. Because Julie and I see no evidence whatsoever for there being a, a market crash. And I know there are a lot of people that are trying to make you fearful that there's going to be a real estate uh, market crash. But we do not see any reason to believe that. And if there were going to be one, trust me when I tell you, Julie and I would be telling you. And we would give you all the reasons why we thought there was going to be a market crash. We'd give you the facts. We'd give you the figures. And we would obviously pivot our podcast and our coaching company to be, be to be more in alignment that we uh, with what we predicted would be happening, you know, which would have been a real a, a market crash. How do I? How do you know that that's what we would do? Because that's what we did back in 06 and 07 and 08. We started becoming, uh, we were for a while the nation's uh, leading short sale and REO uh, coaches and trainers. We were way ahead of the market when the market, when the wheels came off the wagon back then. So if we thought that was going to happen again, we would pivot back in that direction so that well, we could be of service to you. Yeah, immediately. And it wouldn't be hard for us because no. we have, you know, we've done it before. Well, but, let, let me paint a picture of one of those reasons. Let me just illustrate that. A lot of, you know, one of the major market um you know, tenants is supply and demand, right? So let's take a look at the Austin market since I know the numbers on that. About two or three months ago, the inventory dropped below 500 active listings in the entire greater Austin area, okay? Typically, it's right around 1,000 to 1,300. So fast forward to today, it just climbed over 1,200 listings, okay? So we were at 500, now we're back over 1,200 active listings. In that same time, so that's more than doubling the inventory, right? And when inventory goes up, people start screaming, oh, the, you know, it's a it's a bubble, whatever. Guess what the average days on the market did? Well, the, so Nothing. The, po the point that Julie's <laughs> making is this is another, and I've seen this all over the place. The number of new listings has gone through the roof. Oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. Really? So it's going on, like, the average days on the market in the United States right now is 13. So if it goes on the, if it, a house stays on the market for, say, 13 and a half days, who cares? That is not a crash. <laughs> that is not a crash. Sorry. But why are they trying to do that? Because these are uh, obviously attention-grabbing headlines. Now, there are a lot of people that want the market to crash uh, because they will make money then, or at least they perceive they will. Or, frankly, it's because they missed the market and they can't afford to buy in this market. So they're the ones that are going to be hoping and praying that the market comes to them without realizing that it's not going to. So you're not – and here's really what I want you to consider – and this is really what a lot of your questions had to do with. 
I had questions about what should I be, um, like what cost should I be eliminating from my real estate business? What should I be doing personally, financially? What's gonna happen with my, uh, you know, my listings and price reductions? Just all those types of you know, mm -hmm. fear-based questions, but I'm liking the fact that you guys are tuning your minds into the fact that we are in a changing market. So that tells me that Julie and I are doing a good job of without shocking you or causing you to go into some sort of you know, fear state or causing you to open your minds to the fact that you can ha make this your best market because of the market, not in, you know, not because not you can, you don't have to have just a buoyant seller's market to be incredibly successful in real estate. And most, if not all of the most successful long-term real estate practitioners that Julie and I've ever personally coached have absolutely positively started their businesses or built their businesses in a market similar to this. Now let's talk about really the thing that's difficult to understand because none of us have ever experienced it before like what we're experiencing now. It's called inflation. We are not going to talk about why inflation is happening. We're not going to politicize it. We're not going to use any of those little, you know, uh, trigger words that are the politicians love to use. But here's the simple fact. There is a crap ton of inflation. I think everyone will agree to that. Let's not even talk about what the actual supposed governmental produced inflation rate is. Um, and or talk about why it's not really the true inflation rate. Let's just look at what your personal inflation rate is. And here's how you can do it. And I mentioned this on the podcast the other day, and it was interesting. So many of you reacted favorably to me making it so simple. But this is really the most practical and tactical way of thinking of inflation. How much more expensive have the things that you buy regularly become in just the past, say, six months, let alone 12? That is your personal inflation rate done. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. And you can compare, just look at your visa statements, look at your checkbook and compare. I mean, I heard a report this morning that gas has gone up 100% since, I think, December. And every single state, including here, um, is at $5 a gallon or higher currently. Okay, so that's everybody who's putting gas in their car is paying 100% more for gas than they did 120 days ago. Gar so. you know, groceries are up, and depending on what it is, but on average, groceries are up uh, 15 to 25%. All sorts of different things are expensive. The Everything, it, and there's no signs or no reasons to believe the inflation is going to be slowing down. Julie just mentioned gas prices. I was actually watching something uh, yesterday on Bloomberg where I was talking about they're projecting gas prices to go even higher, mm -hmm. and people are trying to come up with some political reason why gas prices are going higher. Gas prices are going higher because the cost to produce the gas, the cost to get the gas to the, the gas pumps, the, uh, the cost to pay the people, the cost of everything is increased, and it's basically outstripping people's ability to comprehend why things have gotten so expensive so quickly. And here's what I'm here to tell you. It's not going to slow down. The only way that inflation has slowed down historically, the only real comp, if you want to use a real estate term, that we have is 1981. And I, we, Julie and I talk about this. We had Peter Schiff on our podcast. He talked about this. In 1981, the inflation rate was 18%. That's back when they uh, weren't jimmying around with uh, the basket of things that they used to uh, figure out what the inflation rate is. And mostly what they've changed is they've removed the cost of housing to determine what the present inflation rate is, they replaced the what they did back in '81 is they used you know essentially what you would use year over year, month over month. What's the actual cost of housing you know yesterday versus today? Well, now what they do is they do something which you'll think I'm making this up. Google it yourself. Called the owner's equivalent of rent. So what they do is they call people and they ask people what they would pay homeowners, what they would pay for their house if they're renting it, and then based on what the owner answered last week versus six months ago. That then is what they're determining to be the inflation rate in housing. Obviously, that sounds like a lot of witchcraft and alchemy. 
Google it, you'll find out that I didn't just make that I, up. I still can't, I can't believe that. I, know. I mean, it just it seems totally made up. And I just imagine like all these people answering the phone. Well, I don't know. I guess I'd pay fifteen hundred bucks a month for it. That, <laughs> exactly. that doesn't mean it's accurate. That's a, a gross guesstimate. Well, and why would the government be doing this? Because inflation mm-hmm. uh, and what the inflation rate is is political. Yes. And that's one of the reasons that the current administration has one of the. And I know this is political, but this is a fact has one of the lowest uh, ratings of pretty much our lifetimes. Yep. And, of course, it's because people are suffering every, in every a single financial category. Utility bills are going to go up. Already are. Every single thing. Now, what causes inflation to go down? Here's what inflation causes inflation to go down. You can say decreasing demand. So let's just stick with that. So how are they going to decrease demand? They're going to make, well, obviously inflation is going to make everything more expensive, but they're also raising the interest rates. Raising the interest rates will obviously curtail people wanting to purchase things to a certain extent, not yet happening in housing. But the reality of it is, is in 1981, the interest rate on a mortgage was about the same, this is important, rate as the inflation rate. It was around 18%. True. I want you to think about what I just said. So Paul Volcker, who you hear that name a lot, um, he raised the interest rates to essentially equivalent to what the inflation rate was. Turns out that is the secret sauce to getting the inflation rate to fall because people, when facing down an 18% mortgage, sure, plenty of them still purchased homes, but a lot of them said heck to the no. Now, here's the biggest difference. There's many, 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 many differences between 1981 and now in the United States. Number one, in 1981, the United States was the biggest creditor nation in the world in other words, we are the one doing most of the lending to most of the other countries around the world. Now we are the biggest debtor nation in the world. The amount of money that the United States owes uh, to essentially and, and essentially debt, just to simplify it to its lowest common denominator, and mostly to foreign countries, is at the point where if the Fed continues to raise rates, they also have to raise rates on the interest rate that they're paying on the debt. What's going to happen, and this is an interesting statistic I heard, the United States last year collected $4 trillion in income taxes. If I'm boring you, I'll go over this point quick. And if they raise the rates to 10%, and many people believe the current inflation rate is far greater than 10%, but if the Fed raised rates to 10%, that would make it so that three of the $4 trillion would go just to nothing but interest on the debt service. Not going to happen. It will never happen. So there is, it's really impossible to believe that the Fed's going to be able to continue, uh, continue to raise the interest rates because of the unintended consequences. They, and again, people will say, well, they did it back in 81, they're going to do it again. They can't because in 81, they didn't have all these other financial mooring lines, all these under other things that would result in, you know, it's not just going to be a recession, but if you were to create a system or a situation like that now, it would be the failure of the uh, U.S. government uh, being able to pay its debt. So it would be a default on the, um, you know, obviously on debt. And that won't happen. A self-inflicted default. Nobody's going to do that. No one's going to do it. So they're going to talk. And look, you already hear it happening. The Fed saying things like, well, we're already seeing signs that the Fed, the, uh, the you know, economy is slowing down. We're seeing the stock market, you know, is going through a correction. We see all these other things. They're going to use that as a sign that in- inflation is being curtailed versus the actual inflation rate because they ha- they're going to have to make a choice. Do they let the inflation rate rise? Or do they somehow just you know trash the economy? They will not trash the economy, so inflation is going to win. That is a theory that you're going to start hearing a lot more people say. Now, that is also called stagflation. Stagflation is where you have inflation, but things like um, wages are stagnant. So in stagflation or whatever happens next, 
the bottom line is, and this is the good news for all of you guys, real estate's going to kick ass. Because why? Because first of all, all the reasons we rattled off and the points that we did and why there's not going to be a real estate crash, one of the biggest ones is, is that people are going to need homes to live in. No matter what happens with interest rates, people are going to need homes to live in. The average U.S. house payment is less for the first time, I bet, ever than the average U.S. rent payment. People need houses yes. to live in. They're going to live in the houses where they're going to pay less per month. And all a bunch of other reasons, there's a massive, you know, record amount of home equity. There's a huge demographic shift that's causing people to want to buy houses. You know, you, the whole thing. Listen to the points we made before. But really, at the end of the day, as it relates to you, dear listener, as it relates to your own personal economy, with regards to inflation, all of your expenses are going to go up. And you, there's really not much you can do about it. It is what it well, is. Well, the other is sell more houses. Well, but that's because also your commission goes up as the prices go up. Exactly. But you are in this weird position, as Julie just pointed out, that you have the ability to earn more money just by doing what you're already doing because your average sale price is obviously going to increase along with the inflation rate. And that means your average commission is going to increase, which means you actually have an income that is pegged to the inflation rate, if not even more. Which the, is a miracle of real estate. Which is pretty much the only industry in, you know, on planet Earth that you can think that works like that. Because in most other markets, it doesn't work like that. In most other industries, it doesn't work like that. So you guys are in the right industry at the right time, as long as you do not allow yourself to be pulled down in the quagmire that's going to cause a lot of people to, you know, frankly, hide out and wait for the clouds to clear. You have to accept the fact that your highest and truest purpose in this planet, as a professional or also individually, is to help other people. That is what makes you the happiest, the most fulfilled. You know, that's what makes you feel like you're being the person you've always wanted to be is when you're being of service to other people. Was that feeling of being of service to other people omnipresent during a seller's market? Yes. But is it even more so now when so many people are being fearful? Absolutely. How do you become more service to more people? Obviously, you need to have a higher level skill set and keep your mindset in such a place that you don't get emotionally involved with all the things that people are. It's going to be extra bad this year because it's a, a midterm election year, too. Mm, that's for sure. So pay attention to what's going on in your own backyard. Monitor your own beliefs, your own mindset. Make sure that you are up to speed with all the, I think you gave them 14 reasons why the market's not crashing. And so you can get into action and do something about your own economy. To your point, Tim, this is one of the only jobs, so to speak, in the world where you have control. Nobody can fire you, right? You can increase your income if you feel like it. You can sell more fewer houses if you feel like it. You can raise your average sale price if you feel like it by getting the skills necessary to move yourself forward. Well, it's a great you do time. have control. It's a great time to become a listing agent, too. Heck yeah, it is. I mean, look, here, every guys, listen. Expireds right now, you're going to start seeing them sneak up. Mm -hmm. And the key with expired listings, we teach you this in our coaching program. You know, there's, there's so many little tiny nuanced approaches you can take when contacting an expired seller. But here's the biggest thing. If you are listening to this podcast, if you've you know listened to the podcast we've done over the last couple months with regards to why there's no housing crash and all the rest of the things that are actually happening, when you approach that seller, you're going to be approaching them with knowledge. And knowledge is going to give you confidence. And they're going to be attracted to your confidence. They're going to be attracted to what you have to say. You're going to have your having fully pre-qualified that seller, set our pre-listing pack, a list of a very professional listing presentation. You can start picking up more business, even if you're a brand new licensee, than you, frankly, I mean listing business, than you probably could have back when it was a seller's market. When it was a seller's market, guys, sellers are not that 
I, I usually say discerning, but you know, careful or even that choosy who they list with because they know the house is going to sell itself. In a market like this, especially an expired where the seller didn't sell with the first agent that they chose, they're going to be more careful. That means that your approach has to be more professional and your mindset has to be, I think, more resilient to make sure that you're meeting the market where it's at. Well, I'm already hearing this on coaching calls is that our agents who and most of them are going after expireds. And so I always ask, well, how did that conversation go? Why did something expire coming out of a hot seller's market? And you're starting to see sellers be more sensitive to who they list with. They're saying things like, well, I thought the pictures were terrible. I thought the description was awful. They didn't even do an open house. I didn't see the agent doing, they didn't even, I heard one last week, they didn't even put a sign in the yard because some listing agents have gotten a bit lazy in this crazy seller's market and they figure, well, if the house is gonna sell by midnight, why should I make the effort? But sellers now are not down with that. Now they're like, you know what, it matters. I wanna get the most out of my house in the least amount of time and, and they have that FOMO that you talk about, fear of missing out on the tail end of what's probably the best part of the seller's market. Yep. And they, they are interviewing more than one agent. They are looking at, after they expire, it's almost always with the center of influence agent that they thought, you know, would the house would just sell itself. Betty from church, who everyone yeah. loves. Well, it always. turns out Betty was riding on, uh, riding on a, a seller's market for the last 10 years and basically just essentially putting it in the MLS, pricing it, you know, good enough, obviously, and the market would absorb it. Now when that starts to change, they might still invite Betty out to interview for the listing because, you know, after all, they know her from church, but she's not going to take the listing because of the fact that she doesn't have the skills. Now, if she does, then obviously it's you know level playing field. But if you're walking in and you have a professional approach, the seller is going to intuitively feel more comfortable with you because of the fact you have a more professional approach. Yes, I, another story from the coaching field was a pretty experienced agent who said, you know what, I've got to get better at my lead follow-up because sellers want immediate attention right now. If, if you know your most motivated sellers, which is exactly what you want, and she said, you know, over the past couple of weeks, I've lost two because I sat on the lead for more than 24 hours, and that seller was really motivated. And we talked about the fact that a new or newer agent, or just more experienced and more skilled agent, who follows the 18 relentless lead follow-up rules, who follows scripts when they call back, is going to clean the clock of lazy agents. So that actually leads me perfectly to the, I was receiving different questions that were all sort of revolving around the same thing. And um, the question is, what should I stop doing? Or like, what do, how do I, um, I'm running these through my filter, right? To, sure. You know, a lot of these were long, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just taking the essence of what the question was. And the essence of the question is, is what should I stop doing? Or rather, how do I decide what I should stop doing? Mm -hmm. And I, think I thought that was a really fascinating question because most people are always, agents in particular, are always focused on what should I be spending my money on? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? In other words, they're trying to hop from you know, one shiny object to another, to another, to another. Mm -hmm. So here's a rule. In a market like this, stop being experimental. In a market like this, You've got to do the things that require that provide the the um, essentially the least amount of effort or the least amount of steps between you and the customer. So if you have a lot of filters of landing pages and all this complicated, someone's going to call back and this is going to call back. The more you have of a of a buffer between you and the actual person you're wanting to do business with, the higher probability you have of losing that lead. And I'll tell you what's more is anything that you're spending money on that there is not a direct undeniable uh, connection between effort and results, don't do it. Because the problem is right now is most of those things, 
that do not equal effort and results. And let's say the effort is you're working on your branding, you're working on your videos, you're working on your whatever it is that you're working on, that you are hoping and praying that one day you're going to get all the payoff from all this effort. But in the meantime, you're just putting in the effort. You get occasionally your mom says, I liked your new video or mm -hmm. whatever, yeah. but you're not getting any business from it. Uh, but you're still listening to all these people sing and dance about how they became the mayor of their town and how they're, you know, essentially you know, getting all this business from their whatever, whatever's, and you are diligently doing it. You're making your TikToks, you're doing your YouTube videos, you're hammering out the social media, you're doing all this stuff, hoping and praying that one day just this mountain of content somehow going to rain leads in on you. It isn't happening. You are still believing it. You're going to this coach, you're going to this trainer, you're listening to these you know, gurus tell you, well, it is absolutely going to happen. You just got to keep doing it. You call them. Maybe you're even using an agency and you call them up and say, I've been doing this direct mail piece. I've been doing this branding piece. I'm still not getting results from it. And you know what they're going to tell you? You need to do more of it. You're just not to, oh, let me look at your account. Oh, maybe make your pictures brighter. You need to upgrade to this. Or, Add this on. Exactly. They're going to try to sell you more stuff. This is the reason. And now there's a place for that stuff maybe sometimes. Uh, but right now is not it. Right now what you should be doing is nothing other than effort equals results type activity. That means if you cannot directly connect that effort to you helping someone, and now I'm going to, don't be confused. You're, you're not running a nonprofit. Your job is not just to help people. Your job is to help people and make money because you are a business owner. You have to be making a profit. So your job is to effort equals the results, which is you getting paid, which I'm going to assume that you helped somebody. You guys get it? Don't, con don't conflate those in your head or be confused about it. This is a people helping business at the end of the day. That means that a lot of the branding activities you guys have been doing, that means a lot of the other things you've been doing, the experimental things you've been doing, the trying to become a great you know, videographer, all these other, you want to become a copywriter, you want to work on your landing pages on Facebook, you want to do all the rest of it. All of this stuff should be treated as what, frankly, it really is, which is essentially very speculative. Maybe someday it'll work. But for now, you've got to be putting yourself in a position to have as many belly-to-belly, face-to-face, voice-to-voice conversations as you possibly can. That is how you're going to win. Anybody who's been in the business for a long time knows what I'm saying is true. But all the new agents coming in, and frankly, all the agents that might consider themselves veterans because they've been in the business for a while, but that for a while has only been a seller's market and they've been able to buy their business and brand themselves and they can, but what, you know, they're buying their business from Zillow and they're paying referral fees now and they've become a flex agent and, you know, all these types of things. That's the hamster wheel that's ultimately going to keep spinning and you're going to run out of money or run out of energy and that wheel's going to spin you off. And that's unfortunately what happens to a lot of agents in a market like this. Because those types of things only work at a high level or at all during a seller's market. Because the, um, the speed of the sale and the FOMO that's in the marketplace compensates for, for the lack of effectiveness of the idea. So if I come out to the marketplace and I'm some marketing company and I say, here's the new thing for expired. You're going to mail them just mail postcard, uh, just, I'm sorry, you're going to mail them uh, postcards, letters. You're going to then hit them up on social. Here's the campaign. We'll do it for you for, you know, 500 sellers a, a month or whatever. And we're going to charge you this much per seller. And you're going to say, okay, great. I don't actually have to do anything other than just give them my credit card number. Mm -hmm. But what you're not doing is you're not qualifying as to whether or not that actually works. Why don't you skip all of that malarkey? Because that's what everybody else is going to do because that is the path that they perceive will provide them the least resistance. In other words, they're trying to avoid feeling rejected because they don't have the skill set to know what to do. Why don't you instead learn how to be a true professional 
and actually learn how to call that person directly, have a conversation that results in you pre-qualifying them and taking that listing. We talked about expired today, but there's you know dozens of different sources of listing leads that Julie and I teach you how to chase um, as part of our premier coaching member, as a premier coaching member. You guys get what we're saying here? So anything that's speculative, you need to put it on the back burner. Anything that you're waiting to have work, you need to put it on the back burner, completely stop doing it. Don't feel bad because you couldn't make it work. Maybe the reality of it was it was just a bad idea that never worked in the first place. That's exactly it. So what should you do now? You've got to get to work and realize the best advertising that you can have is a sold sign in the neighborhood with you getting out there, talking to the neighbors. I use this example. A coaching client of mine had a recent sold. She posted on uh, nextdoor.com slash neighborhood name. Good news is your neighbor's house just sold. I just sold your neighbor's house in 24 hours with multiple offers. The bad news is there's five more people who would have liked to have bought that house. Who's next? I already have a match in this neighborhood for your home. Immediately got the second listing off of that. And I I was listening to that coaching call. I listened to two of your calls yesterday. And then you told that same agent to go out and door knock and let them know about yep. the actual houses that just sold with a list of the buyers that they were actually working with. And that obviously reinforced that agent being dominant in that marketing place. Belly to belly, face to face, sit downs, coffees, the appointment before the appointment, you know, real conversations. This is what makes the difference, guys. It's not just about mass media or massive contacts or having a big database. It's about meaningful conversations. And this is going to be a challenge for some of you who've only been in the business during this era where, you know, it was, this all started, what you're experiencing now is the tail end of what was really started with Gary Vanderchuk in essence. And I'm not criticizing in, in the day that Gary Vanderchuk's um, marketing idea was very novel and it was creative, but a lot of that long tail stuff that uh, a lot of people are still preaching it, right? They're preaching run a, a you know, paid campaign on one of the social media platforms or all of them. Send them to a landing page. Then the landing page, you wanna then put them into a drip campaign. And then statistically, they're gonna try to have you believe that over time, a certain percent of the people in your CRM are eventually going to raise their hands and want to do a transaction with you. That is way too much uh, threat vectors, way too many threat vectors, way too many places where something could get screwed up. The, think of all the nuanced things that you have to do right in order to actually generate somebody just goes to your CRM. And then what makes you think that person's only going into your CRM and not 20 other agents' CRMs? I got a better idea. Why don't you just have direct conversations with the people in your marketplace who right now are saying, I want to sell my house? Why don't you skip all this other noise and the static and all this heavy lifting, all this stuff that's, especially in a market like this, is gonna to be too costly, take too long if it ever works at all, and frankly result in a lot of you guys needlessly suffering. Why don't you instead call the sellers who have their hands in the air right now saying, yes, I have a house that I wanna sell. There are millions of them. You know how I know? In this market, where some people are trying to give you, or trying to lead you to believe it's a doom and gloom market, there's going to be between six and seven million sales this year, not including new construction. Mm -hmm. Six to seven million sales, and you guys know, every transaction, every sale, results in two units or two transactions. So there's gonna be 12 to 13 million real estate agents receiving paychecks, again, not including new construction this year in the real estate industry. There is no shortage of opportunity. There's shortage of, of agents who are actually willing to do the real work of real estate to seize the opportunity for themselves. And you know what's amazing is that what you had to sell three to five years ago, you had to sell maybe three houses to make the same money that you guys make on one house. Truly. So 
it does drive me a bit crazy as a coach when agents complain, well, there's just not enough expireds. How many do you need? One a month? Well, let's get off expireds. It's <laughs> well, not just okay, expireds. Okay, so here's the best thing about Zillow that I've heard in a long time. Zillow is no longer letting for sale by owners put their own houses for sale. Huh. That was the number one tool that for sale by owners said that they used back when we could just scan through. And so the same time that that happened, the listings on for sale by fisbo.com went through the roof. So that's what they go to next. Guess what's on there? Phone numbers, email addresses. I mean, why you wouldn't be going after people who literally have their hand in the air? Here's my house for sale. And oh, here's my phone number. You guys sell houses for a living. If you're not talking to for sale by owners and helping them every day, especially after two weeks on the market, that's a conversation you need to have. Well, we did a podcast where we gave them how many different sources? 20 different 23. sources. 23 different. I think it ended up being like 25. Plus the ones we added thought on of them in along the way. Yeah, so there's over 20, and this is a podcast, over 20 different sources of free listing leads. This is what we do at our coach. Now, free. We, free. <laughs> we tell you guys, obviously, how to work with buyers. We talk about that a lot on our podcast. If you want to add staff or form a team, we tell you how to do that too. We do have sections on, you know, um, social media and uh, marketing and all the rest of it. We even have transaction coordination checklists. Exactly. We have all of that. That's all part of Premier Coaching. But what our primary focus is, is teaching you guys to be powerful listing agents. Now, here's another thing. Why is it that it's so important for you to become a listing agent? Here's the reason why. Never forget this. And if you run everything through the filter that I'm about to give you, um, you're all of a sudden going to realize that the ways, the path forward to becoming very successful in real estate, how do we define success in real estate is helping a lot of people, but frankly, it's the amount of money you're making net profit, the net profit you make from real estate, the product from your successful real estate business is the profit you make from your successful real estate business. And then from there, you can reinvest that profit into things that also produce you passive income. That is the traditional, very proven path to becoming wealthy as a result of being a real estate practitioner. Uh, but really, ultimately, where we're going with all of this is that if you want to be successful long-term um, in real estate, you have to be a listing agent. And it comes down to this very basic principle, but something that's very easy to forget. And here it is, ready? I want you listeners, and Julie, let's role play this. Okay. Like as if you were a practitioner, mm -hmm. an agent. I want you to give me an example of a buyer that has to buy. Well, okay, so I'll pretend that I yes. give the typical answer, right? The buyer has to buy at 1031 exchange, has uh, to buy. Nope, um, you don't have to buy if you were doing a 1031. You can always just pay the taxes. Um, so give me an example of a buyer that has to buy. Maybe I'm relocating. Nope, they can rent. Uh, I just sold my house. I got to get something. Matter of fact, in some markets, if you're in an upper end market and you have a house you're going to put for rent that's a luxury or near luxury home, you're going to be able to charge a king's ransom for that because a lot of companies who are dealing with relocation are telling their relocating executives to rent, not buy. But just that's an aside. Little known fact. Yeah. Okay, so give me an example of a buyer that has to buy. I just sold my house. I gotta, I gotta live somewhere. Okay, well, obviously you can rent for a while. You, you Damn don't it. have to buy. You don't, <laughs> right. Yeah. So here we can go through this forever. There is no example. There is never a buyer that has to buy. Never. A buyer. Uh, and a great buyer, after you run them through our pre-qualification process, obviously, is going to be a very strong want. And we want you to find a buyer or only work with buyers in a market like this that are a 10 out of 10, right? And again, this is part of our pre-qualifying script. But the reality of it is there's no such thing as a buyer that has to buy. There's no such thing as a buyer that can't just decide to stay put, to rent. Uh, that's the reality. Now, I want you to give me an example, Julie Harris of a seller, and this is a long list, mm -hmm. okay? Now, here's the, hopefully what you guys are learning here is there's no example of a buyer that has to buy, but there are loads of examples of sellers that absolutely positively have to sell 
because the pain of selling, of the pain of not selling, the negative ramifications of not selling are greater than the ramifications of selling, the inconvenience of selling. The pain of not selling greater than the pain of selling. Yes. Okay. So I usually go to the sources where it's not up to them anymore. That mm-hmm. would be divorce decree. Mm-hmm. It would be relocation already bought in my next town. I'm not going to carry two mortgages. I have to sell the old house. It would be for whatever reason I can't afford the payment. Or well, it could know. be an adjusting rate mortgage and they don't qualify Absolutely. for the payment. That's not going to happen. Don't but. qualify. I can't refi. I can't requalify. The payment's too big. I have to sell because I, I don't want to be you know in foreclosure or whatever. There's a lot of people that bought VRBOs and whatnot and they didn't work out cash flow wise and they're worried about being That's able right. to make the payment. Financial reasons. Financial reasons, right? So we can go down the probate list. Probate would be another one. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know, probate you know, handled differently. Probate basically what happens to a property when it's passed from heir to heir. But all these different reasons, we can come up with droves of them. Well, here's another. Th- Institutional assets that are being sold. Yes. That's another have to sell seller. Yep. Investors you know. that are unloading things that they don't want to sustain anymore. Here's another thing that people don't consider. Buyers have to qualify. Sellers don't have to qualify to sell their house. Yep. That's a huge, big bunch, bunch of hassle that you don't have when it's a listing. And, okay, so you guys get it? No such thing as a buyer that has to buy. Loads and loads and loads of reasons why there's sellers that have to sell. So if you have to choose one to work with, you obviously want to choose what the one that is going to be the most motivated. How do you know the one that's most motivated? Well, start out by realizing that sellers are always more motivated than buyers. And then add to that your ability to pre-qualify them, to find out what's going on in their lives, find out what's going on in their finances. This is all part of being a professional to determine really what their level of motivation is as a seller. And the reality of it is, is if you had, and here's really where it gets to, if you had to choose between having 20 buyers or five, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I can't even think about that. 20 buyers or five sellers, listeners, which would you choose? And by the way, all these sellers have to sell, obviously. You've Mm -hmm. used our pre-qual script. They're all great sellers. They're all everything's no problems whatsoever. They're all houses. They're not multifamilies or land or anything weird. Okay, if you have to choose five really great listings or 20 buyers based on what we just said to you, if there are probably two or three of you of the tens of thousands listening that will say, I'll choose to work with buyers, well, God bless you. Uh, But the reality of it is, is everybody knows that they're gonna focus on sellers because let's add beyond what Julie and I just said, you also have some interesting aspects of being a listing agent it's called quality of life. Yes, it is. So, I mean, just take your example. Even if it wasn't 20 buyers, even if it was only five buyers, especially in this market, right? Yep. What are you going to be doing with your time this weekend? Are you going to be attempting to win a competitive buyer situation? Find a house to are show. Are you even going to find anything that even remotely meets their criteria? And once the buyer is in contract, are you then going to worry about their financing and what's going on with that? Or sitting there with five active listings as a listing agent, you instead are going to control your time this weekend. You are going to decide which offer you're going to accept and you're going to lather, rinse, repeat. Powerful listing agents know how to then replace their listings like the example I gave on the next door where she sold one and immediately replaced it. Uh, Many, many examples of that sold sign causes the next sign. The listing agent's lifestyle is vastly superior. It's professional. They can work a nine to five. You can get your nights and weekends and back. And it's, fa- it's far more scalable, right? So could you realistically even work with 20 buyers? No, of course you can't. Not even, not even when there is inventory to find all 20 buyers. But can you realistically carry 20 active listings? Heck yeah. Absolutely you can. Now, here's another thing. Just think about what Julie said. So you have five, act- five really great listings. 
every one of those sellers has to sell. That means they're not going to change their mind. Okay, you guys get it? That means the seller that has to sell, their have to sell is not going to go away. It's something that's forcing them to sell the house or making it so that they absolutely positively would rather sell it than keep it. A buyer changes their mind. A buyer is going to take a month off because they decided to go on vacation. A buyer is going to decide to wait for the interest rates to this or the other thing. Well, don't forget there's no contract that you have with the buyer. Don't forget that. Don't forget that your listing agent commission side is much more solid with much less commission compression than what the buyer side is feeling right now. And think of it right now. Where do the really great buyers go? You guys know they're going directly to the listing agents. Yep. So as Julia was just alluding to, as a listing agent, how many transactions are you going to do off one uh, listing? You're, you, if you're frankly super lazy, you're only going to do one. But realistically, in a market like this, you could sell it yourself. You're going to be able to you know, follow our open house strategy. You're, you're going to get some neighbors that are going to sell their houses. You're going to get some all kinds of different transactions if you work it yourself. But this goes back to a, a point we made two points ago. You need to make the gap between you talking with consumers and you non-existent. Do not send them through a bunch of uh, you know, uh, assistance or someone to pre-qualify. Don't have somebody else call your leads back. Take the lead call yourself. One of the greatest sources for that, frankly, is just giving them your cell phone number, mm -hmm. but also having them on your signs. Use a great system like 1-800-HOMEHOTLINE.COM, 1-800-HOMEHOTLINE.COM. Uh, one of the rules in our book, Harris Rules, is furiously fast lead follow-up. In a market like this, in all markets, but especially one like this, where sellers in particular are hypersensitive to who they're going to choose to do business with, all these tiny little nuanced approaches that Julie and I are coaching you guys to you know, start applying to your own business is going to make the difference between you having an incredible year versus you just getting by, let alone you suffering needlessly. Hopefully all this stuff is resonating with you guys. What I'm really hoping, and you know, Julie and I talk about this every day before we do our podcast, is we're really hoping that we're not overwhelming you. We're making you realize that, you, just, you know, maybe you're brand new in real estate, maybe you've been in it forever. Maybe you've had, you know, 20 years of, you know, ups and downs and you maybe you're a little tired and you're looking for, you know, some way of, uh, building your business to the next level so you can you know accumulate some savings or maybe you're the new agent in your 20s your 30s and you're looking to make this your career wherever you are in the spectrum you've got to realize that the more complicated the more you are drawn to making this business complicated the less likely you are to succeed this is not a complicated business this is an easy business but when you start adding teams and you start adding branding you start doing all the digital marketing when you allow people to convince you you need to be you know, some sort of level 20 marketing expert, when you start thinking you need to learn copywriting, if you start learning all, the, all this other stuff, moves you further and further and further away from direct contact with people that want to preferably list a house with you. You guys get it? Our philosophy, because it's obviously the philosophy of pretty much every major or uh, most successful agent in the country, is to lessen the gap between you and the decision-making consumer. You have to have direct communication, less filters, less hoops for them to jump through, less filters, less drip campaigns, direct communication in a market like this is going to win the game. If you want to know how you're going to thrive in this market, this podcast today in particular should give you, frankly, the seeds of hope, but also the inspiration to change where you need to change so you can make this your market. This market, whatever happens next with inflation, and there's probably going to be a recession and all the rest of it, you need to realize you're in the right place at the right time if you apply the right skill set and mindset and realize that, guys, listen, in a seller's market where FOMO was getting most of the job done for us, 
that was relatively easy to, to at least appear successful in a market like this. It's going to take skills. It's going to take you doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. But when you do, you're going to be so proud of yourself because the people you helped, you're going to slowly become the person you always in your heart and soul hoped you would be. Well, the best thing is that the skills that they learn in this shifting market, they're going to keep those skills for their entire career. Yep. And when this happens again, and you and I have seen it multiple times, it this, comes and this goes. This is arguably our fourth, fourth time, yeah. probably. You're still going to have those skills. So this is a very valuable time for them to embrace. Right. And if you've been in the business for a long time and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, here comes another one. Here comes another recession. I don't have what it takes. Of course you have what it takes. Of course you can do it. But you've got the benefit of having a prior experience and you got through it before. Now, opposed to getting through it and suffering along the way, why don't you instead embrace what Julie and I are saying? You guys, listen, there's never been a time when caring, competent, skilled real estate professionals have been more needed. Make them need you. That's the key to making all this work. If you guys need us for anything, if you'd like to talk with Julie and I about joining our EXP group um, or any show ideas, please feel free to text me directly at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. In the meantime, guys, I sincerely thank you for keeping this the number one listen to daily podcast for real estate professionals. Remember to uh, like the pod or give us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And if you're listening to us on YouTube, please like and follow the podcast. Click that little bell icon on YouTube. That would certainly help us out. Guys, again, our sincerest honor to walk this path with you in this marketplace. We are going to continue to do everything and anything it takes to keep you ahead of whatever happens next. Thank you for allowing us to do so. Have a fantastic day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>